straight out of Scotland, this is the Reluctant Theologian Podcast. I am your host, Dr. R.T. Mullins from the University of Edinburgh. In today's episode, I'm continuing my series on rival models of God. Dr. Emma Sani and I chat about two models of God called neoclassical theism and open theism. We discuss the difficulties in defining neoclassical theism and then turn to topics such as the incompatibility of timelessness with divine passibility. Afterwards, we discuss various objections to models of divine foreknowledge and providence, such as theological determinism, simple foreknowledge, Molinism, and open theism. If you have questions or topics that you would like to hear on the show, you can send me a message at rtmullins.com. Well, ready or not, here is Emma and I being open about God. Enjoy. Character that was a regular on the show. What has us to do Kim Kardashian with a neoclassical theism? Nothing with neoclassical theism. It has nothing to do with it. Okay. So, so what is? So we're doing a series on models of God right now. And we just had an epi- a series of episodes with Thomas Williams on classical theism. And so there's a next model of God that I want to talk about, which is called neoclassical theism. And of course, you're going to be like, well, what on earth is that? So neoclassical theism is this weird sort of garbage bag kind of view. This is this is like a sort of grab bag kind of model of God. And so the idea is this. So you've got classical theism, which has four unique attributes of God. It says God is timeless, immutable, simple, and impassable. And the neoclassical theist is going to say, I reject one or more of, that, of those attributes, but I still affirm that God knows the future, so I'm not an open theist. And so it's supposed to be this kind of halfway home between classical theism and open theism. And then also, I don't think God's identical to the universe, and I don't think the universe is in God, whatever that means. So I'm not a panentheist, and I'm not some sort of uh, pantheist either. So I really am just just kind of making a modification of some sort to classical theism. That's supposed to be the big idea. But it's a grab bag, a sort of a garbage bag, if you will, because you could reject any of the four classical attributes— but it's kind of up in the air which one you want to reject. So you have you can reject four of them, mm-hmm. but you, it's important you keep like one that say God's new this future, right? In order to not be an open theist. So remind me again to what an open theist is. So open theists they will reject all four of those classical attributes. They're going to say okay. timelessness. That's false because God's temporal. Mm-hmm. Immutability, that's false because God changes in some respects. Uh, Simplicity, that's incoherent. Uh, We just don't even need that. Impassibility, that's false because God has a whole range of emotions and he is emotionally impacted by the world. But they're going to say because the future does not exist. And since the future does not exist, there's nothing for God to know in the future. So does God know what you're going to do tomorrow? No. No. He has a really, really good prediction about what you're going to do tomorrow. But what are you, in fact, going to do tomorrow? There's no truth about that because the future literally does not exist. There's nothing for there for God to know. Whereas a neoclassical theist, they're going to say, I've got a whole bunch of different stories I could tell you about how God knows the future. Which one is right? That's up to whichever neoclassical theist you ask. But God does know the future. They're going to say that. So, substantially... Mm-hmm. That's the only difference. That is the only real difference. 
I mean, the reason it's I, I call it a garbage bag is because one of those four classical attributes, you could deny any one of those and still be a neoclassical theist. And so that would distinguish you more from open theism. It's not clear to me, though, that you could consistently deny just one of those and not the others because you get into weird sorts of problems when you're trying to do that. And so in my recent book on God and emotions, what I do is I lay out one model of neoclassical theism where I say you have to deny all four of the classical attributes and then still maintain that God knows the future in order to not be an open theist. But I think you have to deny all four in order to have a consistent one. But a lot of contemporary people, a lot of contemporary philosophers of religion, they're sort of in this weird in-between kind of neoclassical position because they deny one of the four classical attributes but still are unaware that that there's an inconsistency, at least I think there's an inconsistency, between denying just one and still trying to maintain the others. So I can give you some examples of this. Yeah. I think it would be good if you give me some examples. Right, right, I'm right. I'm a bit lost. Right, because it's Because if you tell me, I just don't understand how we can call ourselves neoclassical theists mm-hmm. and someone think it's God is possible someone think is impossible mm-hmm. and so or someone think god is in time and someone is like nah it's outside of time how can it be all under the same you oh, know play? under the same model of god yeah, it's just it's mm-hmm. just crazy that's why i think it's a garbage bag because i'm because i'm like look we you need more consistency here and i absolutely because yeah. this is like you know, this could have been anything about mm-hmm. God at all. Yeah. I mean, it's just obsessed about the mere fact is God knows the future or not. And that's mm-hmm. all you base everything on. Right. That's a bit reductive, isn't it? It's a bit It's a bit odd. Uh, because my complaint against other models of God, like panentheism, for instance, most of my arguments against panentheism are you cannot clearly distinguish yourself from any other models of God. And so I think the neoclassical theist is in very serious danger of the same thing. So this is why I think they need to be more consistent and just say, look, I will reject all four of the classical attributes and still say God knows the future. But here's to, in order to show that, let me give you one example of this. So there's this woman named Linda Zagzebski, uh, and she argues that God has to be passable. God has to have a whole range of emotions. So he's not impassable, but she thinks that this is somehow consistent with God being timeless, immutable, and simple. So she's rejected one of the classical attributes, so she's not going to count as a classical theist, because she thinks God can suffer and he can have a whole range of emotions, but she still wants to say God's timeless, simple, and immutable. And I think this is really bizarre, and here's why. So on her view, she says God is what she calls omnisubjective, that he has all like a perfect grasp of all creaturely conscious states so whatever you and i feel whatever you and i think whatever mood we're in whatever emotions we're having god is a perfect grasp of that because he perfectly empathizes with everything that we feel well you start thinking about okay god's timeless and immutable that means that god cannot change in any way and so god is eternally feeling whatever you're feeling and eternally feeling whatever I'm feeling. So that means God's going to be eternally, timelessly, and unchangelessly suffering. Because there's a lot of suffering in the world. But he's also going to be eternally and timelessly happy. And eternally and timelessly frustrated. And eternally and timelessly like suffering. And unchangeably, you know, whatever. You just that doesn't make emotion. any sense. Exactly. 
How I can you have crazy. all the emotion at once? Right. And you get this other worry, too, where since she says God's simple, well, whatever, with on divine simplicity, whatever you want to predicate of God is identical to God. So that means God is literally identical to his suffering and identical to his happiness and identical to his frustration and identical to, you know, you name it. And so I just want to be like, Whoa, okay, here's this really serious problem now we've got. So you've got what's called, what I've called the eternal suffering problem. And it just goes like this. If God empathizes with you, well, since God's an eternal being, God eternally empathizes with you. Well, that means that if, if you're suffering, then God eternally suffers. Woo, balls. Okay, I don't want that. I don't want God eternally suffering because God can never say, thank goodness that's over. So God is going to be timelessly and immutably, so like unchangeably and identical to his suffering. And that's just bizarre. So here's what you get. You get to heaven and you're going to be worshiping God or glorifying God or whatever you're doing in heaven. And, and you're happy because cool, you're in heaven. But God's there suffering because he's timelessly suffering. He's still suffering from whatever has happened in the past. Because, what? Right, because he's timelessly suffering. That makes no sense. No, it's crazy. It's awful. It's really awful. And so there's a bunch of people who want to affirm impassibility to claim that God cannot suffer. And this is one of the problems they'll point out. They'll say, look, if you've got God who's timeless and unchanging and simple, and you want to say God suffers, well, then you're going to have this problem of eternal suffering. God's going to be eternally suffering. And that's just not going to work. So I think that if you're going to be a neoclassical theist and you're consistent, you can't get rid of just one of these four classical attributes. I think you've got to get rid of all of them. But all I've done is show that you can't have, you can't get rid of like impassibility and maintain the other three. All, like, so you still got to do more to show that you've got to get rid of the others. Because you, okay, yeah. so so again. Mm -hmm get rid of all four you're just left with what goes and what god knows about the future right exactly why is this is so important well so most people who are neoclassical theists their claim is well it's not necessarily their claim it's more of their motivation is something like this they look at the classical christian tradition and they say there's a lot of really good things about it there's a lot of things I find really plausible, a lot of things I really like about it, but I can't make it work. So I have to make modifications where I can. But I am unwilling to give up the claim that God knows the future because there's some biblical passages that strongly suggest that God knows the future. So, for instance, there's this passage in Romans. Paul's letter to the Romans says, you know, talks about God's foreknowledge. Uh, in in a, in, a, in Ephesians chapter 1, God says, before the foundations of the world, he is, you know, predestined a whole bunch of things to happen and so it strongly suggests that god knows the future in a pretty exhaustive way and so they're just unwilling to give up that claim so whatever other modifications they want to make about the doctrine of god they're just unwilling to give up that last one whereas open theists they're just like come on guys the water's fine over here like you can get rid of this whole foreknowledge thing and just get rid of all the classical doctrine of god but still not have to go with like panentheism or pantheism or anything like that like, we're the real halfway house here. Whereas the neoclassical theists are going to say, I can't do that. I just really need it to be the case that God knows the future. Right, just because the Bible says so. Well, not necessarily just the Bible. Here's some other motivations they'll have. 
So one argument kind of goes like this. And so um, my friend TJ Mawson at Oxford has this, this argument called the divine bodgery argument. And I think it's really nice because one, you get to use this really English phrase bodgery that we don't have in American English. I have no idea what that right. means. Right. Yeah, because in Italian, you wouldn't have it either. So, so, he, so have you seen the movie Honey, I Shrunk the Kids? Yes. Right. So, so, Tim, so Tim Mawson, he uses this sort of example. He'll say, consider the character that Rick Moranis, the actor, the dad on, in the movie like that he plays. So Rick Moranis' character on Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, like, he's a good guy, you know? He's trying really hard to be, like, a good scientist, and he's trying really hard to be a good dad, but he just keeps screwing things up. Mm-hmm. Just, it's partly because he's just kind of incompetent. Uh, so he's not a bad person, but he's really screw. He's a real screw-up. And so, so Mawson says, well, that's, that's what we call bodging. Like, he's bodging things up. Okay. Mm-hmm. Right. So yeah. So this is a way, I guess, in English, in English, a very English way of putting it. Right. Whereas in American English, I'm just sitting there going, I don't know, wait, what is this bodging thing? So here's how how Tim defines divine bodging. So he says a a person bodges things up if they satisfy two conditions. First, they intend to perform some action that will get whatever result they want. So they have they they perform some action with the intent of having a particular result. Okay. So that's the first condition. The second condition is they don't get the result that they want. Right. And so that's that's a bodge or a screw up, whatever you want to call okay. it. Okay. But has to do with God. Well, if God does not know the future, right. then it's possible that God could bodge things up. Because God could intend to perform actions with certain results and not get that result. And so you could have God bodging things up. And this would go against lots of things. Yeah, I can mm-hmm. see like how this is goes. Like imagining a God <laughs> messing up things. Mm-hmm. Someone that's perfectly lash- rational, mm-hmm. knowing everything. How this is even possible? Right. And so Tim thinks that if you get rid of this claim that God knows the future, you lose a whole bunch of other things you want to say about God. So you want to say God's perfect in power. So whatever God intends to bring about, he's going to bring about. Because an omnipotent, almighty being, there's no way that he could get like a different result from what he intended to do. That just doesn't make any sense. But if God doesn't know the future, it seems like, ooh, maybe God could bodge things up. Well, not necessarily, Mm -hmm. because maybe things don't go the way they you know you plan it to go mm-hmm. at the first attempt but eventually they will go where you want to go right right mm-hmm. well then so this is where the argument gets a bit tricky here so mm-hmm. in the long term you achieve what you wanted to achieve right exactly and so i think an open theist can make this claim because an open theist can say well it really depends what god thinks he's going to get from his actions so what tim's trying to do is say, well, whatever action God performs, he has a particular result that he's trying to get out of, of, of his action. But an open theist can say, you know, God's smart enough to know that he's not always going to get whatever he, what he whatever action he's performing. So God would perform actions in a different way. He would perform actions a bit more like you and I would, because when I perform a particular action, say I'm trying to make a good apple pie, I don't know if it's going to turn out exactly, you know, <laughs> one way or the other. And so what I do is I'll just say, I'm gonna try. I'm gonna make an apple pie to the best of my abilities. Is it gonna turn out perfect? I don't know, but it's gonna. I'm gonna get an apple pie at some point. Mm-hmm. So I That's don't have true. a super specific end result 
yeah. in mind. I've got a, some sort of probability or some sort of range of results. But that that's what you expect. Mm-hmm. I mean, you would expect someone is perfectly knowledge and, and all the attribute you want to give mm-hmm. to calculate the maximum probability after some action. Mm-hmm. But obviously, if you don't know exactly how things are going to be, you can have like one as a probability. But right. even if you have 0.9999, it's still very good. It's a very good probability. Exactly. Yeah. And so this is what actually is a bit weird and where I think Tim could kind of push a bit more if he wanted to. So the open theist, they talk in this sort of way about God being really risky when he creates a universe. So open. So one, for instance, like there's one book, one of the earlier books on open theism is called uh, "The God Who Risks," mm-hmm. and so it's very much a risk-taking God. And sometimes they'll talk about like they'll really play up this claim that like God's just super risky. He doesn't really know exactly how things are going to turn out when he creates a universe. And in the sort of claim that you and I just made a minute ago, though, it's a bit more cautious. God's not really that risky. He's just like, I've got some general kind of plan of what I want to bring well, about. Absolutely. It's mm-hmm. just like when I'm doing my experiment in the lab, right. obviously, because of my, you know, knowledge that I have through the years, I know what if I'm mixing some chemicals together and I make, make some experiment, make some reaction, I have a general idea how things are going to turn, turn out. Mm-hmm. There is no way if I'm plan an experiment is gonna you know turn out very very different to what mm-hmm. i actually planned right i find it really implausible i mean if i was a first year student yes but <laughs> <Sure>. <laughs> i moved a long way from yeah. that yeah so it's been like 10 years in the game and i'm pretty sure i know something about that right so i'm Mm, you know, that's been make me think that God probably will have a better grasp of when he creates something. Right. Right? Yeah. Because when you design an experiment and then you're getting ready to start actually doing the experiment you've designed, you're already hedging your bets about what you're going to get. Yes. Right. And I, maybe I won't, I won't get it right straight away, mm-hmm. but my knowledge will tell me, okay, I'm out of, uh, I don't know, 10%. 20% off of mm-hmm. actually what I should look at, not 19 or, or even 100. Exactly. Yeah. And so this is what I think the open theist should say is something more like this, is to say God is the sort of being, he's not really that risky. He actually does hedge his bets. He knows the probability of what he could get out of any possible circumstance. And so he knows I'll definitely get the results I want at some point in the future, when will I get it? That's not certain, but I definitely know the probability of when I'll get these things. Yeah, and, plus, and that's all going to be built into his plan. Well, he's got all the time in the world. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't right. think he can, you know, have problem of timing. Right. Because what's if another it's an day? eternal being, exactly. is like, okay, this doesn't work out. I can't wait a thousand years. You mm-hmm. know, it doesn't matter. Right. And so these are ways I think the open theist can try to get out of the divine Baudry argument that T.J. Mawson runs. But other people who are neoclassical theists, though, they're going to say, well, I don't have a problem at all with this because God does have this exhaustive knowledge of the future before he even creates a universe. Mm. So I can even avoid all this worry about God having to figure out the probabilities of anything. None of that's a factor at all because God knows for certain what he's going to get before he creates a universe. Yes. On most neoclassical models. Right. But uh, 
the problem with this model is free will, isn't it? It is. Mm-hmm. That's a big problem yeah. because if God knows the future, He knows how things are gonna go. Mm-hmm. Means that He knows all my possible actions. Yes. So, do I actually have a choice in my life? Mm-hmm. Right. And so, there's three kinds of options that typically go for a neoclassical theist. There's one fourth option that I can mention as well that I think is interesting. So the first option is to be what's called a theological determinist. And so you could say God's in time, God's mutable, he changes, he does one thing after the next. God's not simple because that's just, just, is incoherent, it doesn't make any sense. And of course God suffers. God, when he sees the horrible things that happen in the world, of course he gets a bit sad sometimes. But he definitely knows the future because he determined, he causally determined what's going to happen in the future. And you might say, well, that's not freedom. But here's what a determinist is going to say. He's going to, they're going to say, look, freedom just means you have, you're the source of your actions and you have the ability to do some action or refrain from doing some action. And you always do what you want to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Whether or not that's compatible with being causally determined, that's a second issue. So everybody agrees that's just what freedom is. But the determinist, a theological determinist is going to say, well, that kind of freedom it just is compatible with God causing you to do what you do. Um, Whether or not you buy that is a, is, well, is a problem. I, I, but I yeah. might understand what you mean in the mm-hmm. sense like, let's say my story is written somewhere. Yes. And, and God's know the story. Yes. But well, in this case, God wrote the story. Okay. He, oh, well, that, that's, wait a second. Mm-hmm. Wait a second. <laughs> right, this is where it gets really tricky. Yes, because let's just put start simple. Like, mm-hmm. There is mm-hmm. a storyline. Yeah. And just God knows the story. He mm-hmm. did not write a story, though. Yes. But he knows. Mm-hmm. So in this case, I would say I have all the free will in the war because I can take, like, good or bad decision, and the story is that. Mm-hmm. And God just read it. And that's, that's, and that's that. That's that. Yeah. But I have the problem if God's writing it. Right. Then it's like, I don't feel I have a more choice in here. Yes. Yeah. So what you've done is if you've pointed out uh, one version of it, which is called a simple foreknowledge view, which is where the just stories just is written and God just knows that it is the case. So I'll explain that one in a second. But, but the theological determinist is saying God writes the story. And that's where... I just kind of go, hang on, you told me freedom is, you know, that I am the source of my action and that I do whatever I want and that I could have done otherwise. But now you're also telling me that the reason I do the things that I want to do is because God caused me to want the things that I want to do and caused me to do the things that I want to do. Yeah, you know, people would be like, oh, but God knows you so Mm -hmm. well, so you can predict whatever you're going to do anyway. Mm -hmm. I don't like that. <laughs> well, that's that's a different claim because, a, okay. because the determinist is saying God knows you so well because he wrote what you're going to do. He's oh, causing you to do what you do. That's even worse. I that's think the other thing worse. that's not free will at all because yeah. if it was like, okay, God's completely made me so yeah. knows absolutely me inside out so yes. he can predict every action I'm going to do. Mm-hmm. Fair enough. Right. And but I'm the story. one taking action. Exactly. That's one thing. Mm-hmm. But saying God's decided for me from start is like, well, it's not room from free will at all. Right, <laughs> right. And so one option for the neoclassical theist is to take this theological determinist story, but then they've run into all the problems you just pointed out, which is 
hang on, God's the one who wrote the story. God's the one who's causing me to want these things that I do. God's the one who's causing me to do the things that I do. I, I've i lost my grasp on free will now. Yeah. Right. So the other option, though, that you pointed out, whereas we'll say God just, the story's just, it just is the case. There is a story about what I'm going to do. And God just knows it. How right. does he know it? I don't know. Uh, but he just knows it. And this is what's called the simple foreknowledge view. Actually, there's a bit more details here. So the simple foreknowledge view says, once God decides to create a universe, then all of a sudden the story just comes into existence. So God decides, I want to create something. Okay. And then a story comes into existence. Right. About what everybody's going to do. And then... That's okay. God knows the story. It's a bit complicated. It because is. it's like, wait a minute, who decides this story? Right, because it's not exactly God, because God didn't decide the story. He decided exactly. to create, and then all of a sudden the story exists, and then God knows the story. Yeah, mm -hmm. it's... No. Right. How this is possible? I don't think it is possible, but here's what a, someone who affirms the simple foreknowledge <laughs> view will try to say. They'll say, well, look, at the very least what I can get you is God didn't write the story. Yeah, I understand, so, but who did? You just don't get me... You're not giving me anything. There's some so God number two here. did that? I mean, come on. I don't know. It's just it's, ridiculous. It's just, that's just what you're going to do. <sighs> that's just what you would do. I'm not doing it. <laughs> <laughs> really? Maybe, yeah. So so the simple foreknowledge view, they'll say, look, uh, it gets out of this sort of worry that if God knows the future, then you don't have free will. They'll say, well, God didn't write the story, so there's nothing causing you to do the things you do. It's just, that's just what you're going to do. And just, what God does is just, no, just what God's going to no, do. No, no, it's just uh, passing the barrel. It does feel a bit like this. Yeah. Yeah. Here's another problem that it faces. There's no providential control here for God. So the so the theological determinist that I told you about, like mm -hmm. they're saying God writes the story. So God's definitely going to get what he wants. When God creates, he's like, what kind of universe do I want to create? Well, I'm the one writing the story, so I'm going to get the exact universe right, I want. Right. So he knows he's going to get whatever goal he wants. So that's how you can avoid T.J. Mawson's claim of divine bodgery. Yeah. Because on divine bodgery, it's you, God intends to perform some action, but he doesn't get the results he wants. The right. theological terminus says, God gets exactly what he wants. Well, if you got the simple foreknowledge view, it's not clear that God gets what he wants because God's just like, I want to create a universe. And then now all of a sudden there's a story written and God's like, oh gosh, that's what I'm going to do? I have to do what? I have to suffer on a cross now? Excuse me? <laughs> Ooh. I'm okay. I guess that's what we're doing now. And there's no providential control here. So it might not necessarily be a divine bodgery, but it's definitely really weird because you're, because God has no real control over what happens yeah. in, the, in the future. And that <sighs> that seems like a separate problem. Well, what if, what if you know the story, mm -hmm. but he can still change it? Right. So you need some kind of control here over to change the story. Yeah. Yeah. So if you're going to be a neoclassical theist, there are at least two other options available. So the main one is called Molinism. And Molinism is the view that all the stories, there are just a bunch of stories that just do exist. And God exists and he's aware of all these different stories that he could create. He doesn't write the stories. Mm -hmm. The stories just do exist. There are all these logical possibilities. Right. And he picks which story he wants. Right. So he didn't write the story. He didn't write, this is what Emma's going to do. He just knows, oh, if Emma were in this circumstance, that's what Emma would do. Right. And what God does is he uses his kind of knowledge to go, eh, that story, ooh, that's a terrible story. This one, eh, it's pretty good. Ooh, 
this is a really good story. All right, we're going to go with this one. I'm going to make this story happen. And so he's got some kind of control about what future he wants to bring about. And so what you've got there on this, so you avoid divine bodgery because God gets exactly what he wants. And supposedly you avoid any worries that the theological determinist had because God's not writing the story. And then you avoid whatever weird worries that the, the simple foreknowledge you had because on the simple foreknowledge, you've got had no control whatsoever. Whereas on this view, you've got a lot of providential control because God's like, which story do I want? I want this one. And so it seems like it's supposed to be this really sweet spot. Like you get everything you want mm. and God knows the future. Okay, so what's the problem there? I'm sure well, he, he did a whole episode on Molinism. We did a whole episode on Molinism and we ran through some objections. But there's one objection that I still can't get over. And it's the main one that a lot of people really, really just can't get over. It's what's called the grounding objection. And for the purposes of this episode, basically it's just this is like, okay, you're telling me God exists and a whole bunch of stories exist. Where did these stories come from? What makes mm. them true? Yeah, and this has come back to the to the point of like, even if you have one story only, mm -hmm. you still have this problem. Right, Doesn't why matter. is that story the case? Yeah, mm -hmm. I mean, if you have one story, then determine all the rest of your life or many story with different probability is the same problem. Mm -hmm. It's like, who decides this? Right, and the Mollus wants to say, you decided it. But the thing is, before God creates a universe, you don't exist. But there's supposed to be some story about what you would do in any possible circumstance that you might exist. But you don't actually exist, though, to actually do anything. Mm. And so it's really hard to figure out what really makes that story true. Yep. And so a theological determinist is going to say nothing could make that true. And an open theist is going to say the same thing. They're going to be like, that's right. Nothing could make that true. The only thing that can make it true is you doing it. Whereas the theological determinist is going to say the only thing that can make it true is God determining what you're going to do. Right. So both of those people are going to gang up on the on the, the Molinist and say this this is just incoherent. Like you can't really have these stories that just coexist with God and they, they just are true because there's nothing that makes them true. Hmm. And so that's a very serious problem because I really like Molinism. Like it's it gives you all these things that you want, but this problem, what's called the grounding problem, it's a very serious one. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That but, sounds like yeah. a really big problem because if I'm not existent, but there is a story about me. Mm -hmm. But wait, um, is God aware of every single story before the universe has been created? That's what the... Well, okay, most models of God are going to say yes, other than the simple foreknowledge view. Because the simple foreknowledge view, well, the simple foreknowledge view could say God's aware of all the possibilities, but he doesn't know what's going to happen until after he creates. And when he after he creates, then all of a sudden, oh, that's what's going to happen. Whereas the theological determinist is going to say God knows all the possibilities, and then he just determines this is the story I'm going to write. Okay. The Molinist says, oh, here's all these stories. God doesn't write them, but he selects this is the one I'm going to make happen. Well, I don't think then it's such a big problem mm -hmm. anymore because um, so if I'm God and I'm going to create a universe yeah, and I did not create anything yet. Right. But I know, I will know every single creature that I'm going to create very shortly. Mm -hmm. All the different possibilities I can go through mm -hmm. their life, even if they're not even in existence. Yeah. 
I think again can relate with that with experiments. Oh, okay. Because it's like I know what I'm gonna do, mm-hmm. and I would know that will imply certain things. Right. I don't know exactly what because it, obviously he never done that before. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right, because he's not created a universe before at this point that we're yeah, talking about. Yeah, right. so even if it's like super knowledge than everything, he never done that before. So right. he doesn't have all the knowledge that come to create a universe with. Right. I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. Tell me if I'm wrong. I definitely want to say that when God creates a universe, he learns something new. At the very least, he learns this is what it's like to create a universe. Yeah. Yeah. And it also, we learn how it, how it's like to be old creature that he will create, mm-hmm. I guess. Mm-hmm. Or you think you already have a knowledge of something that didn't come to existence yet. I think you could know some things about the creatures you have not created yet, but you wouldn't be able to know this is what it's like to experience the creatures that I've created. This is what it's like to experience any of these sort of things that I'm doing now. Well, in this case, mm-hmm. if you don't have a complete understanding on and know what it's like to be a creature. Oh, right. Yeah. Then the fact that I can have multiple different stories about a person or about a creature, mm-hmm. that would make much more sense because I can mm-hmm. predict how this person of things will behave yeah, but the Molinist is going to want to say God's not making predictions because the story is already, there's already a determinate truth value about how the story goes. Well, I don't think that's true. I right. think you can only do predictions. Then you're going to be rejecting the Molinist claim is what you're going to be doing. You're going to be accepting the open theist story because the open theist story is going to say God knows all the possibilities and he can make really good predictions, well, but he doesn't know for certain. Whereas the Molinist is going to say it's all certain. It's all certain. But certain what? Why is it certain? I don't understand. Everything. Well, I would define what's certain. So if you are in a very, very specific situation, you would do one particular action. Whereas if you're in a slightly different situation, you would do a different action. And God knows both of those things with certainty. Okay. So if you're talking about in terms of probability calculus, God would be able to assign a point one to everything every single specific situation you mean one he'd put a point one. yeah sorry one. not a, <laughs> a point one because point one that's super low no you could assign a one yes. to it okay yeah so it's 100 certain every single situation was 100 certain before he creates anything that's what the molinist wants to say i see now you can kind of see why it's like yeah. a lot of people are like i want that but ooh, that's no i think it's a that's, bit hard it's a bit hard that's too much mm-hmm. because um if you really want to create something that has his own mind, mm-hmm. you cannot fully predict because it's not you in the end. Right. So how do you? How can you possibly know? I think there you can, you know, have improbability of this person behave at zero point nine 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 percent. Exactly. But not one. Yeah, and this is exactly what the open theist and the theological determinist both agree on. They're both going to say, if God does not causally determine what you're going to do, then it's all for just predictions. And so the open theist says, I'm happy with that. Whereas the theological determinist is going to say, I am not happy with that. 
God but not create a universe where he is unaware of exactly what's going to happen. Well, that's not true. It's like an 0.9 probability. That's pretty high. That's really Come good. on. I know. I don't understand. Like what? Yeah, exactly. Well, you'd be like, what exactly is the problem? Um, there's this thing called dwindling, dwindling probabilities. And so sometimes people try to run these sort of arguments against open theism in order to try to affirm some sort of neoclassical understanding of God. And so the idea is that, well, when I start adding up all the different probabilities together, this thing's a 0.9, this other thing's a 0.8, and so on. When I start adding all the probabilities together, the probabilities get smaller and smaller and smaller. Because anytime I start adding much probabilities together, they'll all point something and so I'm going to get a smaller probability of that in the after the end is is supposed to be the idea. I don't understand enough about probability calculus to know how to do these sort of things. I think this is mm, um, how can I say this in a polite way? <laughs> 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 well, because it's like the probability assigned to my action that has a beginning and to an end. Yeah, I don't understand why it has to be some to another probability mm-hmm. which begin and end it's oh, okay. finished my action yeah. is done yeah. the probability is assigned to that action you cannot make a sums of all my action all my probability it makes no sense well if i'm trying to f- arrange an entire y- universe and an entire timeline of how i want things to go well, then I have to add all those probabilities together to figure out I've got this one plan of how to bring all these things about. That's why I guess I would have to engage in adding up these probabilities. So it wouldn't just be like, well, I want Emma to do this. Well, I want Emma to do this so that way Ryan well, will do this and I want Emma and Ryan to do this so that way, you know, whoever will do these things. And so I have to add all these things together. Yes, but you mm-hmm. will have to add my probability with another person probability. Yeah. You don't have to add all my own probability you know what I mean? Oh, okay. Okay, so you're thinking that the way that... So yeah. there is only one one action that I'm going to perform. Yeah. Is going to be, you know, assign a value. Yeah. And then whatever other action that can influence mm-hmm. my decision, they're going to be assigned a value. Mm-hmm. But when the action, the total action has finished... Yeah. That's it. Yeah that's all the total value get out of it you cannot like assign constantly doing some of things and well, i don't think that's correct so as things are i guess i'm trying because again like my my ability to do this sort of probability calculus is terrible like i just i and, and in fact i usually refuse well i'm to not do great it. in statistic too mm-hmm. but it's just like i'm feeling like if an action has a start and an end mm-hmm. that's how should you take it Oh, okay, so this, so the, so you, so as you're understanding it, then this very idea of the dwindling probabilities that just doesn't make any sense. Like, yes. there's no way to get that up and running. That's 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 just my gut feeling, and mm-hmm. I'm not an expert on that. Sure, yeah, but okay. I'm feeling like if it's something, you know, if God decided I'm gonna stand up, I mean, <laughs> not God decide, mm-hmm. He God has like an idea of what I'm gonna do in the next hour. Mm-hmm it will have independent on me another little factor that can influence myself right but that's and there once i perform the action mm-hmm. the action that's done yeah yeah i think that's right i don't think because after that action there's another one following up that will have his own probability right so what i've done before has no influence on what i will do in the future 
Okay. So doing the sum of everything of, through my life, mm-hmm. I think is stupid. Yeah, because the idea is it's supposed to be like before God creates a universe, he's trying to add up the sums. But what you're saying is he just needs to know enough to get the initial stages up and running. And then he knows enough to adjust the calculations as he goes along. Yes. And in, in such a way that they're not really going to dwindle. Like that doesn't, that just doesn't make any sense. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's my fitting. Then right. I don't know. I'm not and that's what And that's what a lot of open theists typically want to say. But again, I don't understand the, how to do probability calculus enough to really assess these sort of arguments. I just, I don't know. I just always kind of find them weird because I, because I, I feel it's I'm being uncharitable to an open theist because I think the open theist understanding of God is that, God just has this exhaustive knowledge of the past, exhaustive knowledge of the present, and an exhaustive knowledge of all the possible outcomes that could come after this present mm-hmm. moment. And I'm like, that's enough to have a really good, a really, really good guess of what's going to yes. happen. And I would hope, I would should think that the open theist God is going to be prudent enough to really hedge his bets if things are pr- a really low probability. That's the way at least I would see for an open theist. But these sort of worries, though, the neoclassical theist says, that's still enough to make me really uncomfortable. I really, really would prefer that God just does know how exactly how the future is going to go. That way I can guarantee that God's going to get a good end out of all of this. But you're still worried, well, I don't know how to get free will out of this. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So there's one final option that I'm aware of. So my friend uh, Ryan Byerly he has this this book on what he calls the mechanics of foreknowledge and providence, and he calls it a time ordering account. There's some really super technical details in the philosophy of time that I won't go into because they're super technical, and I don't know how to explain <laughs> them in a non technical way. Uh, but he thinks it's better than the Molinist sort of story. Okay. But the, to kind of warm you up to it, though, one of the things he does is he says, "Well, what exactly is it about the fact that God knows the future?" that would make you not free. Mm-hmm. And that's a question that doesn't typically get asked. People usually just go, well, if God knows the future, then I couldn't have done otherwise. And he's like, well, why not? God just knows that you're going to do it, but that doesn't make you do it. You need some sort of story to tell that. that yeah, the no, 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 I understand yeah. that. It's just like, then he knows the way it is. Right. And you have your own choice. Exactly. Yeah. And so one of the things that someone like my friend Ryan can do is he can say, well, look, Here's one way to kind of get rid of the freedom. Maybe you could give the theological determinist story. And so you're causally determined to do what you do. That's how God knows the future. Well, on that case, you can really start to see why you're not able to do otherwise or why you're not really free. Mm. And so Ryan's like, well, okay, well, in that case, we can get rid of that one. Uh, But what other options are there available for how God knows the future? I don't know. I don't, why should I think I'm the person who can know this? I'm not in a position to know such things. Uh, that's really beyond my ability to know. I know it can't be the theological determinist story. Whatever the other story is, I don't know. Uh, and I should not be expected to know. So I can be skeptical about how God knows the future. But since I know that there's only one story to tell about how God knows the future and I don't have free will, and I can reject that one, well, there's a bunch of other stories to tell that don't make it clear why I would not be able to be free. Well, I don't know which one's right because I'm not in a position to know which one's right. Mm. There might be some other stories too that I don't know because I'm not in a position to know. So I've got very good reasons for saying, God knows the future. There's no real reason to think that I couldn't have free will if God knows the future. So I can just remain skeptical about how God knows the future 
and remain skeptical against any reason for thinking that I would not have free will in that case. And so really what it is, is just, it's, it's, a, it's a very different sort of tactic. Instead of really identifying what the story is, it's just saying, I couldn't know the story. Uh, and there's no reason to think that whatever story you give is going to undermine my freedom unless you give me a, a determined story. But I'm going to reject that story because, right. it's, because that's just as clear. And so then he gives you this super technical other story that is a possibility, what he calls the time ordering account, where God orders all the different times into a particular timeline that he wants in order for you to be free. But it does really, like I said, super technical stuff in philosophy of time that I find interesting and, and really, really fascinating. But I don't know if it works yet or not. <laughs> it gives you a lot of the same sort of things the Molinist is going to want to say, but because of some of the conceptual machinery it builds into it, it gets out of that grounding objection that I that I they mentioned. That mm-hmm. sort of like what makes it true, um, because it'll say what makes it true is the way the moments are ordered, and since since God orders the moments, then yeah. no problem. But it's it's yeah, I don't know how to explain it in a non technical mm. way. But those are some of the options, at least maybe for the neoclassical theist. But like I said, so the main story with the neoclassical theist is though, like I say. Those four classical attributes of God, timelessness, immutability, simplicity, and passability. I'm going to reject one or more of those. I am of the opinion that they have to reject all four in order to have a consistent model of God. But what they have to do in order to be distinct from open theism or any other model of God is they have to say God knows the future. And those are some sort of the issues that we've just talked about that they have to face in order to have a coherent model of God. And there you have it, another episode of the Reluctant Theologian Podcast. Stay tuned for episodes on panentheism, pantheism, and so much more.